0: And if your Bible is not open to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, please open it to that that chapter in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And when you found your place, we will pray before we begin. Our gracious and most kind God, it is your word that we turn to now and our hearts hunger to hear the truth of scripture and to hear your voice in the pages of this book. Thank you that you speak to your people through your written word and that your Holy Spirit applies those truths to our hearts. So we pray that your spirit would do that work of illuminating your word to us, that we may understand and that we may obey it, and that we may see in the 3,000-year-old wisdom of Solomon things that apply to our day and describe our very own day. Help us to take heed to those things to which you would have us to take heed and to gladly bow the knee to the truths of Scripture this morning. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Well, We'll begin with something of a quiz, a little Bible quiz. Don't panic, because this is going to be an easy quiz. In fact, it's only going to be one question. And we'll going to make it even easier by making it a true or false question, which means that you have a 50% chance of getting this right, which is even easier better odds than multiple choice, which we always used to refer to as multiple guess. So this is just a true or false question. So here's the question, true or false. The Bible says that money is the root of all evil. The Bible says... Oh, no, you're not supposed to... <laughs> Sorry, I was supposed to preface the whole quiz with just answer quietly in your heart. True or false, the Bible says that money is the root of all evil. Some of you are way too quick in answering false on that. Now, some of you might have thought, well, it kind of sounds a bit true. If the Bible doesn't say that, it probably should say that because that sounds something like it sounds like something I would read in the book of Ecclesiastes, short, pithy, concise, concise. Uh, It certainly seems as if that's something that my grandmother would say when I was negotiating with her for money to mow the lawn, that she would say something like, Jimmy, the Bible says that money is the root of all evil, so you should do this for free. (laughs) So if the Bible doesn't say it, maybe the Bible should say it, because a lot of people do a lot of evil things for money, don't they? And then having gotten the money for the evil things that they did, they spend the money on a lot of evil things. So maybe it is true, or maybe it's false. Maybe that's one of those statements that we kind of think is in Scripture but really isn't in Scripture, that when you dig into it, people say this is what the Bible says, but that's not really what the Bible says. Like, cleanliness is next to godliness. Right? You tell your kids that, the Bible doesn't say that. Or God helps those who help themselves. That sounds like a Scriptural thing, right? It sounds like something you find in the book of Proverbs, but it's nowhere in Scripture. In fact, it's not just unbiblical, or it's anti-biblical, It's not in Scripture at all. So is it true or is it false? Now, those of you who shouted out, false, right away, you were right. It is false. (laughs) The Bible doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. The Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil. And there is a chasm of difference between money being the root of all evil and the love of money being the root of all evil. Those two are not anything like each other. They're completely different. The Bible does not teach that money is the root of all evil. It teaches that the love of money is the root of all evil. The Bible has a lot of positive things to say about wealth and prosperity. A lot of them. Not, not that it promises us prosperity for believing. We're not promised prosperity. But the Bible has a lot of positive teaching about money. Sometimes money is the blessing of God upon his righteous people. Like Proverbs 10 verse 22 says, It is the blessing of the Lord that makes one rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. In other words, when, when God chooses to make somebody rich, he blesses that individual with prosperity and wealth and there is no sorrow or anxiety or bad things that come with that. It is, an, it is a distilled, uh, unequivocal blessing of God. But b- prosperity can also be a curse upon the wicked, as in Psalm 73 where Asaph laments the prosperity of the wicked. It can be a blessing upon the righteous and it can be a curse upon the wicked because money is not a moral or immoral thing in and of itself. Money is just a tool that can be used But if somebody loves money, the Bible has all kinds of words to describe that, like greed and covetousness and selfishness and jealousy and envy. The love of money is always condemned as something that is the root of all evil. It is always condemned as idolatry. In fact, the Bible lists the love of money and covetousness and greed right alongside of idolatry because it is the love of those things which draws our hearts away from God and the true God, and so that becomes idolatry. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about money, positively as well as negatively, and we're looking at uh, today in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, Solomon describing some of the things that vex the wealthy. Now, in verses 8 and 9, he describes some of the things that vex the poor, the poor oppressed. Oppressed by whom? Oppressed by the government bureaucrats, the officials who are being watched over by officials with still more officials over them. In verse nine, so the poor are oppressed. And now, just in case you are, just in case you are thinking to yourself, well, the way out of being oppressed then is to covet wealth and to pursue that. And if I only had more wealth, if I can only love wealth more and accumulate more of that, Solomon is going to correct your understanding of that now in verses ten to twelve as he describes some of the things that vex the the righteous. The poor have their own problems. But the wealthy have their own problems. They're just different problems. And those of us who are poor, look at the wealthy and we think, man, if I only had all of that. You look at the the Hollywood starlet and you think, if I only had all that they have, making millions of dollars. I read this last week that that Tom Brady is going to make, I don't know how many millions of dollars during the offseason just because his contract cashed out that way. And we tend to look at people like that and think, if only I could just get paid to sit and do nothing for the next six weeks because that's what the union tells me to do. And I'm making millions of dollars. If only I had all of that. People who are wealthy, they have their own set of problems. And they look at the people without the wealth and say, man, there are parts of my poor life before I had all of this that I really long for. And we all kind of look at each other wishing that we had the lifestyle that the other person has. right? We say that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. That's how we see it. And then we realize that that grass is growing over a septic tank. And then we understand why it is that it's greener on the other side of the fence. It's not, it's not all roses on the other side like we tend to think that it's roses on the other side. So Solomon is addressing now the, the wealth and the things that come with wealth. And there are three things that Solomon says that wealth cannot give us. Wealth fails to provide satisfaction in verse 10. Wealth fails to provide security in verse 11, and weal, wealth fails to provide sleep in verse 12. Those are the three verses that we're going to look at, only three verses, even though the subject of wealth and poverty kind of goes all the way through the, almost to the end of chapter 6. Solomon has a lot to say on this subject that we're going to be looking at over the course of the next few weeks. It has taken me longer to get through Ecclesiastes than I thought. I mean, this is only three verses, and in all honesty, when I started this book, I thought that probably by the middle of summer we'd be done with Ecclesiastes and on to the next project. And I'm just throwing that out there as my complaint. I understand it's nobody's fault but my own, but I'm just telling you this is going slower than I thought it was going to. So we're going to look at how wealth cannot, how wealth fails to provide satisfaction, security, and sleep. If money could buy happiness, Sol- Solomon would have been the happiest man on the face of the planet. If, if money could buy satisfaction, Solomon would have been satisfied. If money could buy peace and purpose and meaning and significance in life, Solomon would have had all of that. But does Ecclesiastes read to you Like a man who is satisfied with his life, who is at peace, who knows his purpose and understands his meaning, and is a happy man. Does this sound like the diary of a happy man to you, Ecclesiastes? It does not. And that indicates to us that wealth and riches fail to provide certain things. And we need to understand what those things are and what the biblical perspective on them is. So, verse 10, wealth fails to provide satisfaction. Look at verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. Now notice there's a parallelism that's sort of characteristic of of Hebrew poetry. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with his income. And the idea of satisfaction there works in both of those parallel statements. He who loves money is not satisfied with money. He who loves abundance is not satisfied with the income that comes from abundance, with what the abundance brings. So what Solomon is describing here is the insatiability of the fallen human heart to be satisfied with what it has. The one who loves money can never be satisfied with money because he is insatiable. And there is an insatiable element to humanity. In fact, this insatiable element exists in all of creation. And Solomon has observed it throughout the book, and we've seen it on a couple of different occasions. Later on in chapter 6, I want you to see what Solomon says in verse 7. Look over chapter 6, verse 7. He's describing here the insatiability of man. Verse 7, all a man's labor is for his mouth and yet the appetite is not satisfied. Now that comes that is in the context of dealing again with riches and poverty. When he says in verse 7, all a man's labor is for his mouth and yet the appetite is not satisfied. He is drawing an analogy here between physical d- d- drives and desires and the satisfaction of them and money and how it does or does not satisfy. There's a, a parallel here. You, you get hungry several times a day. You get hungry. Now when you sit down this afternoon for lunch and you eat a full meal, does that satisfy your hunger? No, it only numbs it for a period of time because that hunger will never fully and finally be satisfied. It will just be numbed so that you don't feel the hunger, but eventually that feeling is going to come back. And so it is with water and other physical appetites as well. It is satisfied periodically, but only temporarily, or numbed periodically, but only temporarily. But eventually that appetite or that desire comes back. So a man eats, all of his labor is for his appetite. He eats and gobbles it up, but he's really not ever satisfied because a man can never stop and say, no, I've had enough. I've eaten my fill. I had that that T-bone steak and now I'm full. I don't ever need to eat again. You may feel that way after you've eaten a big T-bone steak, but that's not the reality. You are going to have to eat again. And so it is with money. When money comes in, it satisfies for a period of time. Oh, I got this. Yeah, got that bonus check. I got that. That feels good. Put it in the bank account. I look at the bottom line. I see the number. Yeah, it feels good. until Briefly, until you realize there's still more to be had. I could get another bonus check. I can make another check. And if I got more, I could buy this. And so there is this insatiable element in our attitude toward money. The one who loves money will never be satisfied with it. Solomon described the same thing, actually concerning money, back in chapter 4, verse 8. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, and yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, and for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This, too, is vanity and is a grievous task. Hear that? His eye was never satisfied with riches. He worked himself, he had no dependent, he had no need to work that much, but he worked endlessly, and yet he never asked himself, for whom am I depriving myself of pleasure and working so endlessly? I have nobody that's dependent upon me. And yet his eye could never be satisfied with the riches. This insatiable element exists in creation as well. Solomon observed it back in chapter 1 when he said in verse 7, all the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. Remember that cyclical nature of of, uh, a cyclical pattern to nature that we looked at in chapter 1, and yet these things are never satisfied. The sun is never satisfied with its course across the sky because it repeats it again the next day. Solomon observed that. The wind is never satisfied with the blowing. It blows on its courses, comes back to where it started, and keeps on blowing again. The rain is never satisfied with falling. We felt like that this spring, haven't we? The rain just keeps falling and falling, and it flows into the rivers, and yet the rivers are never full, and the rivers flow into the sea? Is the sea ever satisfied? Does the sea ever say it's enough? I've had enough. I'm all full. It never happens. It can never happen. And this, this insatiable characteristic in all of nature is in the human heart as well. We can never be satisfied because enough is never enough for us, no matter what it is. We have to fight against this element of our nature that always wants more and more and more and more of whatever it is that we're talking about. We are insatiable creatures. And this is the reality of living in a fallen world that is under the curse this insatiable element. So a man can, will never be satisfied. If he loves money, he will never be satisfied with it because he will never, ever have enough. When that idol is on the heart, that idol, no matter what we offer to it, can never be satisfied with the offering. You can offer to it more, it will never say enough. This describes our fallenness. This describes our, the idolatry of the human heart. We have to come to a point where we say, I can be content with what I have and deal with what I have Ecclesiastes 1 verse 8 Solomon says all things are wearisome man is not able to tell it the eye is not satisfied with seeing the ear is never filled with hearing remember that passage it's insatiable element to our physical our physical drives our physical desires It can never be satisfied because we never get to the point where we say that's enough I can live with that and so it is with the one who loves money he will never be satisfied with money now who are these lovers of money that Solomon describes in verse 10 When he says those who love money can never be satisfied with money, who are these people who are the lovers of money? We don't have to look very far in the context because the previous verse, I think, tells us exactly who Solomon has in mind. They are the officials who are watched over by officials who have other officials watching over them. These are the people who oppress the poor, taking from the poor for themselves, exploiting the poor for their own benefit and for their own use. I think Solomon has that in mind. These are the lovers of money. These are the rich people who are using their positions of government power to take from others what did not belong to them and to exploit them for their own use. Those are the ones who love money. They do that not for the common good. That's a lie. Right? Officials who take from others for themselves, it's not the common good. They say, oh, you need it for the children and the schools and the fire department and the police and the, the roads. And that is just a pretext. People who do that, do that not for the common good. They do that because... They can take their living from the sweat of another man's brow and they will use their power to exploit others. They are the rich. That's who's being described, I think, in verse 10. But it goes beyond that because the love of money doesn't just apply to the rich, does it? Sometimes we are told that you can tell who loves money because they're the ones that have a lot of it. Is that true? That's not true, is it? I have known people who could not care a whit about this world's goods. They are generous. They give. They don't even have any idea how much money they have in the bank account. They never obsess about it. They never think about it. They could care less about the last million or the next million. They they don't give a care about any of that. And yet God blesses them with abundance and prosperity and wealth because in God's providence he has done that. And yet you can meet other people who live paycheck to paycheck, have a hard time providing for their family, and they are just as covetous and greedy and lovers of money as the worst Scrooge McDuck you could ever find on the face of the planet. Because it is all about money for them. We are told that you can tell who loves money because they're the ones with a lot of it. And that is a lie. That is not true. The issue is not how much money you have. It is how much you love the money you have or even how much you love the money that you don't have. That is the love of money. So it is not just the wealthy. Are there wealthy people who love money? Sure there are. Sure there are. Are there poor people who love money? Sure there are. Are there dirt poor people who love money? Absolutely. This, is, this has nothing to do with class. It has nothing to do with political party. It has nothing to do with ethnicity or your location on the globe. This has to do with the idols that we set up in our hearts and what we love and what we set our affections on. The individual who, who makes $5 an hour can be just as covetous and greedy as the man who makes $5 million an hour. It's irrelevant how much money you have. What determines whether you love money is whether you love money or not, not how much of it you have. What do we say about the individual who doesn't have very much of this world's goods, but they resent with bitterness, the one who does. Is that a love for money? That's a love for money. Are people all obsessed that Tom Brady made that kind of money this last year? I'm not a Tom Brady fan. You know that, right? How many times do I have to say that? A hundred times a day? I'm no Tom Brady fan, and I'm not defending Tom Brady, but I could care less how much money he makes. It's none of my business. I don't give a rip. I don't care how much money he makes. It's completely irrelevant to me. There are people all upset about that. That We need to take from him and give to somebody else. That's nothing but covetousness and greed. The idea that I deserve what somebody else has made or that I have a claim on that, that I should be able by the force of government or government policy to take from that individual and make it my own and distribute it to myself or to use on my friends, how is that not covetousness and greed? If that's what you advocate, that is a form of covetousness and greed. People who love money are obsessed with what other people make. And they're obsessed with what they make. And they're obsessed with how much of what they make should be what other people make. Those people love money too. See, this is this is a universal condition. You can't just say, well, because I'm, I don't have very much, therefore I don't love money. That's not necessarily true. So who are the people who are these lovers of money? It really can apply to all of us. Solomon has in mind a particular group of people who are the lovers of money. And they are the ones who take from and oppress other people in order to get it. Verses 8 and 9 we looked at last week. Now, biblical worldview tells us that money is not good or bad in and of itself. Money is not moral. It is not immoral. Money can be used well. It can be used foolishly. It can be used wisely. It can be used to advocate things that are horrible. It can be used to advance things that are great and good. Money is simply a tool. And the Bible describes the good use of money and it describes the bad use of money. A good view of money and a bad view of money. It describes the, the individual who is blessed by God as well as the individual who is cursed by God with riches. Riches can be a curse. That's what Psalm 73 teaches. Riches can be a curse. So money is neither moral or immoral in and of itself. But how it is used and how it is viewed, it becomes a moral issue. And and what our culture does with it makes it a moral issue. And it's becoming more and more of a political issue as we are all pitted against one another because of how much we make. And the rich people are always those who make more than me, right? That's how we view them. Anybody who makes more than me is rich. Anybody who makes less than me is poor. And I want to take from them to give to them. And if some falls off on me on the way by, then that's great. But these become moral issues because the Bible addresses what is a right use of money and a wrong use of money. So let me give you some examples from the Proverbs where Solomon teaches that money can be the blessing of God. Proverbs 3, 9 and and 10. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. There Solomon says, make wise use of your money and give to the Lord off of the first fruits of your income and so God will make sure that your vats are filled with new wine and your barns are filled with plenty in other words the blessing of God upon the faithful and regular giver who honors the Lord with his wealth the blessing of God is increased wealth and more wealth in many cases proverbs 3:16 speaking of wisdom solomon says long life is in her right hand and in her left hand are riches and honor this is the benefit of wisdom wise people use their money wisely invest their money wisely spend their money wisely and God rewards that. There is rewards built into the fabric of creation and the economy that, b- that blesses and benefits that. Proverbs 8, verse 8, again, speaking of wisdom. This is wisdom speaking. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and the righteous. But then the Bible condemns the misuse of money and even setting our affections on money. Proverbs eleven twenty eight. He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like the green leaf. So what does Scripture call us to? Not to obsess with what other people make. Not to obsess with how much we make. Scripture calls us to contentment. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, Paul writes, But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful lusts which plunge men into ruin and destruction For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, for longing for the money, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The all things through Christ who strengthens me applies to uh, living with little means or living with lots of means, living in prosperity and living in want as well. Paul said, I can do this. I can handle whatever the Lord brings me. But in this, I have learned to be content with what God has provided and God's hand at that moment and what he has given to me from his hand at that moment. That is what scripture calls us to because money itself can never bring satisfaction. He who loves money will never be satisfied with money nor he who loves abundance with its income. The second thing, money, riches can never provide is security look at verse 11 when good things increase now by the way i'll just stop right there notice solomon's view of these things what does he call them when good things increase the word good there means beautiful or or uh, uh, generally speaking it is beautiful or lovely and it is a a good or kindly thing when good things increase what are these good things it's the wealth or the abundance the riches these things are good this is, scripture doesn't say that these things are bad that everybody who has them is bad sometimes these things are good when good things increase verse 11 Those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to the owners except to look on? When your riches increase, those who consume your riches increase. What is Solomon describing there? Well, when your riches go up, you have to... This happens in all kinds of different ways. But when your wealth increases and your riches go up, what also happens at the same time? The number of people who consume your riches also increases. Because once you have a whole lot of money, suddenly you have to be concerned with doing what? keeping that money you don't want to lose it so it's probably good if you are successful or rich that you find a lawyer who can put all of it into a trust or a corporation or a foundation or something to protect your assets and keep them from being seized and so he's not going to do that for free he's going to want a little cut of that himself and then once you have all of those forms filled out and your wealth is so much you're going to have to have somebody who does your taxes and probably somebody else who can make sure that they're doing the taxes right so you're going to need an accountant and probably a tax lawyer to protect all of that and then you don't want your investments going up and down with the market So it's probably good to hire a stockbroker who can kind of watch what's going on and recommend investments for you and put them here and put them there and do all of that on your behalf. And it's probably good to have a lawyer on call just in case somebody else wants to sue you. And then once you have all of the money, finally, you can buy that big house that you've always wanted with a big yard that you've always wanted and now you've and put a pool back there but you don't have time to maintain all of that so now you have to buy a, a pay for a pool cleaner and a landscaping to come mow all of your yard and then the maintenance on the big house and your sewer bill goes up and your water bill goes up and you have three furnaces in your house now instead of one furnace in your house and you got to maintain all three of those and more electricity and and more upkeep on the whole thing when good things increase, those who consume them also increase. Suddenly all of these people attach to your lives, and those are just the legitimate ones who want to increase your wealth. Then you have to deal with, once you become rich and you have all of this wealth, then you become a legal target for people, right? So you got to slip and fall lawyers who are lining up somewhere to file some frivolous lawsuit against you for just existing because they see in you a big payday, a big cash out, and so they can sue you for something that's some, some grievance that they fabricate out of thin air. And there are always people who are lining up to sue other people because that's their ticket to riches. And then you become a target. When you're rich, you become a target for other people to sue you for whatever reason, whether it's legitimate or not. You become their target. And so you have to hire lawyers to protect you from the slip and fall lawyers. And there are people with their lawyers on their speed dial waiting for you. And then there's managers who want to consume your money and the agents that you have to hire, right? And you have, you have, all of a sudden, you have friends you haven't seen since high school. They're showing up, and they're best friends. You haven't seen them in 20 years, but now they're your best friend now that you're successful. And Cousin Eddie, he comes out of the woodwork. Crazy Cousin Eddie, you haven't seen Cousin Eddie in 25 years, and suddenly, you're best buds again. It's just like when you were 10 years old, hanging out, and you buying him popcorn, and you buying him tickets to the movie theater again. Where did Cousin Eddie come from? These are leeches and parasites that in our society that just are drawn to that. So when good things increase... The number of leeches and parasites that come out of the woodwork like cockroaches and they suck onto you like, like tapeworms and they just want to bleed you dry. That's just the reality of life. This is what the rich deal with. And they spend millions of dollars protecting themselves from this. Millions of dollars. It's a, it's a never ending cycle. Think their life is all sunshine and roses? It's not. If you had what they had, you'd have to pay other people to protect what you have. And and then Solomon asked the rhetorical question, so what advantage is the owner but to sit by and watch it? That's the end of verse 11. So what's the advantage? What's the good part of this? I just get to sit back and watch it. I watch what I have accumulated just slowly bleed away. And if anybody knew this, it was Solomon. Do you remember back at the beginning of chapter 2 when we read from 1 Kings chapter 4 of of Solomon's retinue, what he ate daily and all of it went on at the palace on a daily basis? Do you remember that? It was was what was consumed by the, the three slippy boys. Do you remember that? is an enormous amount. You know what it took to maintain Solomon's kingdom? You know what it took to maintain houses for a thousand women that were at Solomon's disposal, as well as all of his princes and the heads of state and his advisors and the court jesters and the cooks and the people who had to maintain the parks and the gardens and the yards and the ponds that Solomon built, and then to maintain all of his massive building projects? You know what it would take to keep together Solomon's empire and to keep his wealth all in one place? It would boggle our mind. The bigger the kingdom is, the more it costs to maintain that and try and keep it up. And so what Solomon says, what, what do I have to do? What's my advantage? All I can do is sit back and watch my money just piddle away, just drain down away from me. It's just this decree. And the more I heap up, the more I have to pay to heap up more. It becomes this never-ending cycle. That's the curse of wealth. As good things increase, those who consume them increase. You think wealth can provide security? No, because the minute you gather it together, it's going to be consumed by other people and you're just going to sit by and watch it happen. That's all you can do, because that's the reality of life in this world. Third thing you cannot provide is sleep. Verse 12, The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. The sleep of the working man is pleasant. Now, there's a contrast here between the working man and the rich. That The... what Solomon is describing here, I think, works on a number of different levels in a number of different ways. I'm going to describe to you kind of three three things that are going on in this one verse. There are three real contrasts that are being, I think brought brought together all in this one verse. One of them is this contrast between the working man and the rich. Who are the rich? The rich are those who cannot sleep, but the working man is able to sleep, and his sleep is sweet. And the idea is that the working man works all day, and when he finally comes home at night and he walks to the door, he can lay down and he can just sleep well. Why? Because he is so exhausted from working. But the rich man, on the other hand, he doesn't have that problem of being tired when he comes home. And so his sleep eludes him all night long. And there are three reasons here why I think his, Solomon is indicating that the sleep eludes the rich man. The first is because of this distinction between the working man and the rich man. Now, it's not that Solomon is saying that if you have riches, you have not worked for them. That's not what he's saying. Nor is he saying that if you are rich, you don't have to work. That's that's not what he's saying. He is describing here, I think, particularly the officials that he has mentioned in verse 9. He is contrasting them with the working man who has to work the field that the officials take from. The officials glean from that field. Even the king himself benefits when the field is cultivated, right? From the cultivation of the field. We saw that last week. And so there's this contrast between the man who is working in the field and cultivating it and the official who is taking from it. Now these are two different people, two different classes of people, and two different things are going on. First you have the official. Now before I get into this, I'm not suggesting that everybody who has a government job or works for the government is a lazy, no-good slob. Okay, I'm not suggesting that at all. Solomon might be suggesting that. You can take that up with him when you get there, but that's not what I'm suggesting. That's not what I'm getting at. So if I'm not describing you, then I'm not describing you. But if I am describing you, then you need to listen to what Solomon is saying. Okay. Solomon is describing the officials who watch over the officials, who watch over other officials, whose only point of existence is to devise ways, even perversely, of taking what other people have for themselves that does not require them to work, contrasting that with the working man who labors himself. We understand that there are people in our society, in our culture, who have positions of power and influence, whose only intention in going to work every day is to find a way to take from other people what they have so that they can continue to justify their existence. If that describes you, then this is describing you. If it doesn't, it doesn't. It's that simple. I would never suggest that every government job or quasi-government job or job provided by a government agency is inherently sinful. I don't believe that. I think that there are necessary jobs. So this is just so that I don't get all the love letters in the mail this next week from people who might think that I'm describing that because I'm not. Okay. You contrast the individual whose only role is to not work. And he goes to, he goes to work at nine o'clock in the morning and he has a mid morning break. And then he has an hour lunch. He has an afternoon break. And he goes home at five o'clock and he really hasn't worked. He's just kind of sat around the office and done nothing and, and just kind of lounged about and really hasn't exhausted himself. And then he gets four weeks paid vacation every year and another three weeks of paid time off and another two weeks of paid vacation days that the government provides and and more and more on top of that and and he really doesn't do anything for his labor. And again, I'm not describing every individual government employee, okay? You contrast that with the working man who has to be up before sunrise because when the sun comes up, he has to be working. And then he's gonna spend his entire day working like a slave to maintain his farm, to cultivate the land, to keep his equipment running, to maintain his family, to maintain his livestock. And he does all of that. And he even goes out late after night when the sun goes down and he's working in his barn and he's maintaining the equipment that went down during the day. And he does all that day after day after day. And he is exhausted by it. And he gets very few hours of sleep every night. And if this man, because he lives in a cutthroat world, if he had, if he lived for one month, like some lazy people do, he would be out of business in a heartbeat. He, he literally bakes his bread by the sweat of his forehead each and every day. But when he crawls into bed at night, he sleeps like a rock. Why? Because he is exhausted. And so Solomon says that working man's sleep is sweet. But the rich man who does not work for what he has, but instead takes it from somebody else by oppressing them, these are the ones mentioned in verse 9, they don't sleep at night. Why? They're not even tired. And so sleep eludes them. That's the first thing that's going on. The second thing that I think Solomon is describing here is the, the difference between the man who is, I wrote down here, oh, they're describing the concern that keeps the wealthy up at night. The wealthy have certain concerns that keep them up all night long. Now, the rich man, the poor man, he has certain concerns as well, the working man, right? But his concerns drive him to work and exhaust him, and so he sleeps well. But the rich man, what is he concerned about all day long? Always thinking about all night long is how do I keep what I got? How do I keep these leeches from taking and consuming what I have? I see my wealth dwindling and he stays up all night worrying about that, obsessing over that, brooding over that, trying to keep his kingdom together, trying to heat more up of what he has because he loves money. He's never satisfied with money. So everything is about just accumulating more. So what keeps him up all night long? The idea of accumulating even more than he has. And he cannot sleep for that reason. Because he is concerned with all of the people who are consuming what it is that he has made and what he has brought. And because he loves it, he can't stand to see that happen. And so that robs him of sleep every night. And the third thing I think is going on here is the contrast in the diet that Solomon specifically mentions in verse 12. The sleep of the working man is pleasant whether he eats little or much. But the full, the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. See, the poor man, whether he eats a little bit or whether he eats a lot, his food digests well because in that culture, what did a poor person eat? They didn't have a slab of meat every night with a big baked potato. They didn't enjoy that. You know what they had? They were lucky if they had a slice of bread that they could dip in some olive oil, some vinegar, or some date or fig mixture and eat that with a cup of water. That digests pretty well, doesn't it? Even if you're lucky enough to throw some vegetables onto the plate alongside of the bread with a little dip and sauce, that all digests pretty good. So he not kept up all night by a full stomach. But the rich man, on the other hand, what does the rich man eat? a fresh slab of meat every night. And cheeses and expensive wines and all that stuff. And further, the rich man can the rich man can afford to glut himself every night. Now you've had this experience, right? Where you go to a restaurant, or maybe you eat at your own home, and you pull a nice twenty ounce T-bone steak off of the grill, and it's perfectly seasoned and grilled to perfection. And you put that down next to a giant baked potato with sour cream and cheese and butter and bacon bits and and then a big chunk of French bread on the side of that. And you got to have a salad, a nice salad, and some fettuccine alfredo right next to your 20-ounce porterhouse. And then you got uh, you got the cheesecake right there, right next to that perfectly seasoned steak. I don't even know where I was going with that, but it was... <laughs> yeah, the rich man. So this is what the rich man eats, and he gluts himself on this at 8.30, 9 o'clock at night, chases it with a couple of cups of wine, crawls into bed and his stomach is just aching. Feels like he's going to pop. How well does he sleep? Do you think he's going to sleep and that's going to go unnoticed all night long? He's going to toss and turn and burp and hiccup and be miserable until morning, right? Because the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep because he gluts himself. So the rich man with his full stomach looks at the poor man and says, Man, if I'd only just eaten bread, dipped in some olive oil, and a cup of water. And the poor man looks at the rich man and says, if I only had a steak every night before I went to bed. Last thing, 20 ounce tri-tip steak before I went to bed every night. If I could just have that. right?" And they envy each other. And Solomon's point is, do the poor have issues? The poor have issues. They're oppressed. They're oppressed by people who want to take from them what they have. Do the rich have issues? The rich have their own issues. They're never satisfied with what they have. Their riches are never secure. They're always being consumed by other people. And the rich are robbed of their sleep, even by their riches. The, The rich are unable to sleep because of other people consuming their riches or because they are consuming their riches. Either way, they are robbed of the sweetness of sleep. So what does God call us to? Contentment. That's what we're called to. We're called to contentment. Not to envy what other people have and advocate that we take it from them either by legitimate means or illegitimate means. That's not what we're called to do. We're not called to love what other people have and want it or desire it. We are called to be thankful for what God has provided for us in this moment and at this time as his blessing and to richly enjoy it. And is going to go on and talk about the rich enjoyment of those things. It was part of our scripture reading, verses 18 to 20. This is the gift of God. Whatever it is, eating little or eating much, to take from the hand of God and to enjoy it. And to not long for what other people have, to not desire what other people have, to not covet it, and certainly to not love money. Because the rich have their own issues. Being rich, is no solution to being poor. Being poor, is no solution to being rich. This is part of living in a sin-cursed fallen world, right? There is is no way, and this is what Solomon is getting at, there's no way to escape that vanity. It can't be done in this world. There's no way to escape the vanity. The vanity takes from the poor, and this vanity takes from the rich. doesn't matter which class you are in, you are not going to escape it. This is what it means to work under the sun. This is what it means to live under the sun. This is what it means to to be living in meaninglessness and emptiness in a sin-cursed fallen world where everything is characterized by this insatiability and everything is characterized by vanity. Rich or poor, vanity takes from us all. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we pray that you would forgive us for our covetous hearts and our greedy hearts. They exist in us. These are the idols that we have set up these are the ways that we think that are characterized and described here in Ecclesiastes. And we don't want to think that way. We want our thoughts and our hearts to be characterized by a, a godly contentment that is great gain as Paul describes it in 1 Timothy 6. So we pray that you would help us to be content with what you have given to us and to love you and worship you as the God who has promised to provide all of our needs, not necessarily all of our wants, but all of our needs. And you do so faithfully. You do so regularly. and Help us to live within those means and to live in accordance with the way that you have called for each and every one of us, and to not to covet what others have, whether rich or poor, that we might honor you, the giver of every good gift, who never changes, and who is always good in all that you do toward those who are yours. And so we thank you for this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church.